This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, conversations with Ukraine and Stefan Berko, plus your passenger rights that you need to know, and are you okay with porta potties and bike lights? It's been a couple of weeks since we've had the opportunity to speak to the man with my most favorite mustache on the entire planet. His name is Stefan Berko. He's in Kiev, Ukraine, and um, he's a student of the law and works for the future of what Ukraine looks like. Well, de jour, and uh, he joins us now. Stefan, Happy New Year. Thank you, Shane. Happy New Year and uh, um, happy holidays to all you Canadians. Oh, thank you very much um, for that. Um, we wanted to reconnect and find out what is going on for you, uh, what is new in your world. We have so many questions uh, to chat about. I, I understand the weather's been warmer uh, around Christmas time, at least a little bit nicer than, than it, it would normally be uh, in the winter in Ukraine. Uh, how are things looking from the life front? Let's try to forget about the war for a second um, and the invasion. Let's let's chat about uh, what life looks like for the dad who's uh, trying to raise a child and be a husband and and find his way through winter in Kiev. How's that going? I would say that uh, the 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 gen- generally. Uh, everything is as normal. Uh, Christmas holidays are always like a, you know, great time to to spend more time with your family uh, and uh, maybe reconnect with some friends. So we are trying to do that. And of course, uh, I mean, you, you cannot um, absolutely forget about the war. So the, this background uh kind of reminds the important uh, things and that it's really important to stay in touch with people you love and you, um, you, you cherish in your life. So I think this, these uh, Christmas holidays were special in, in, this, in this particular way. Uh, what does it look like for your family, understanding that you're somewhat limited, of course, there are air raid sirens, there are all kinds of things. Is there one special a Berkel family tradition um, over the holidays that you're comfortable sharing with us to let us know what it's like for your family to get, like, is it a get together? Is it food? Is it an event for just you? What is What's one thing you can share with us that, that your family does? I don't think we have like any special tradition. We, yeah. we just, we just spend time uh, sometimes cooking a, a holiday meal together, even with uh, my five-year-old son. He is already uh, old enough to help us, so I think this uh, preparation for for uh, holiday uh, dinner is uh, is a general thing for any any Ukrainian family. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's great. Um, okay. Well, there's been lots that's gone on, Stepan, over the course of the last couple of weeks. Many different places we can start. Um, there, uh, I mean, what, what, what is the number one story? I've got a couple of places that I would like to go to be able to um, bring into conversation some things that are going on. What is the biggest story that is uh, everybody's talking about? We would in Canada in English call it, you know, the water cooler talk when everyone's having the conversation around the water cooler. What is the biggest story that is in conversation um, with you and your friends and coworkers right now? Mm, just a very fresh news. Uh, is that uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church 
will be having a sermon in our most famous uh, church in Kiev, in capital. And um, why it is so important? Because uh, it's uh, almost 300 years since they had their sermon there. Uh, and uh, it was 300 years uh, um, when the Russian Orthodox Church had sermons there. So I know that it's like very complicated uh, religious uh, question. And uh, of course, uh, um, none of Canadians understand this uh, um, uh, history. But it's really important because we, we feel that history is changing in, you know, in the plain sight. So we're, we're basically Ukrainians are coming back to, to their origins and including in a religious way. Well, that's that's that must be a big one. We've talked about faith a little bit. It's um, with the Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, and all of those. Um, the separation of the fundamental, uh, I guess, the base of that into an identity that is Ukrainian and an identity that is Russian. That must be incredibly important for Ukrainians to take that that core of the faith and be able to make it their own separate from the old, old, old lineages that did connect it to Russia. I mean, that must be very special for for everyone who celebrates inside that faith to be able to make it their own. Of course, uh, as I said, uh, we're coming back to, to our roots. We had a, spa, a separate church uh, uh, centuries ago, but because of our political influence under Moscow, our church was also um so to say occupied and uh, you know coming back to uh, still we have these uh, christmas celebrations uh, uh, not as um, generally all christians in the world so we're, we formally have christmas on the 7th of january not the 25th of december um, because of some calendar issues but uh, many people feel that this year despite the war and despite the atrocities, it's like coming back home. Uh, so coming back to having your own church, to having these celebrations with the whole European uh, and, you know, uh, global Christian community. And that brings uh, us uh, to many people, this feeling of being united uh, uh, and, uh, and coming back home. It's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and very important for a, a country and, and a bunch of people that are trying to and have been, I guess, for 20 or 30 years here, trying to build what is the future of this country as an independent society, you know, independent in its own history and lineage as well, which is, is pretty fascinating. I've been watching some World War II shows recently and just I'm brought back to the importance of everything that happened back in World War II even. Um, you know, with with Germany into Poland, uh, across Ukraine, fighting against Russia, and just seeing those maps and how the maps are um, so different when you look at what was World War II and what Germany tried to do. Um, it's just a, such a good reminder that, I mean, that's only a generation away, Stepan. Like, that is literally my grandfather. It's not like it's five generations down the road where it's great-great-grandfather did this. I mean, you and I are removed from it from one complete generation, and that's it. And we we have to keep that in mind about how important it is and how new it is of what Ukraini, uh, Ukrainians are trying to do to create a future. 
Yes, I mean, the history of World War II resembles what's uh, going uh, on right now in Ukraine. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's really important to, to learn the lessons of the World War II and uh, uh, to, to, to uh, use these uh, lessons today in 2022 so that we don't have to, you know, go through all these uh, things again and uh, not to make these lessons, uh, uh, you know, made in vain. Uh, in mm -hmm. Ukraine, uh, we, we, we really understand that, um, you know, evil has to be fought and evil has to be uh, fought with force. If you, if you in any way show your weakness, evil is only uh, welcome to do more evil. And uh, unfortunately, all, all the atrocities that are happening this year in, on Ukrainian soil, they just, they just are practically have the same nature of what was going on during the World War II, atrocities that were done both by Nazi regime and also by communist regime, because very often we forget that the World War II was basically started both by, by Soviet Union and, and uh, Nazi Germany. They divided Europe into parts. Um, one of the stories that uh, that is really important okay, that, okay. Has come, yeah, yeah, yeah. that we've got okay. here um, back now is one of the stories, Stepan, that, that we've seen is this attack on, um, it's in territory of Ukraine, but it was a queuing station where a bunch of new recruits and stuff for Russians were there. There's the accusation that it might have actually been cell phone signals and a concentration of cell phone signals that tipped off Ukrainians, that there were so many Russians at that depot. There's also uh, assertions that they're stored a lot of munitions there and what happened was is that it was actually the munitions got hit and everybody was just sleeping too close to it russia said 63 people died that would make it the single biggest that they've actually acknowledged uh ukraine and other countries say it could be in the hundreds of people that died um what is that conversation in and around uh, you and your friends when you talk about the war those moments this is just one of the news, uh, of course, that uh, people are happy that uh, so many uh, Russian soldiers uh, were killed and wounded because otherwise they would be shooting our soldiers. And of course, it shows how Russian military uh, officers and high ranking officers, how they don't care about their soldiers and how they manage to host them in, in the same building where they were storing munition, which endangers uh, soldiers as uh, only one or two hits in this building will cause a huge fire and the destruction of the building and, and deaths of these people. But um, I would say that this shocks uh, many Ukrainians how uh, Russian army is treating their people. We don't have any pity uh, for them because it was their choice to join the army. They had this choice to either go to join military or face some other consequences like... Uh, uh, I don't know, prison uh, terms. Uh, but um, another thing that many people are also talking is that Russians have so uh, many, uh, their population is so uh, big that uh, despite uh, all, the, uh, uh, all the thousands of uh, Russian soldiers killed already, and despite other thousands being killed uh, right now, they will be able to supply more and more troops 
poorly equipped, it doesn't matter, but more and more thousands of troops will, will be supplied on our fronts. And that means that we basically have, uh, to some extent, underestimated their will to to kill them, their own people just uh, in order to, to occupy Ukraine. And that means that uh, both Ukrainian society uh, has to be more united and more ready to 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 fight that means each and every person has to be ready to at some point to join the military and also the um, western societies have to be have to acknowledge that this fight will be a long fight and uh, um, ukraine has to be supported because if we are not supported we will lose this war uh, and that means that Ukraine will not exist and Ukrainians will be wiped off uh, the map. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, the latest articles coming out saying that Iran is the number one arms dealer to Russia right now and supplying them with most of those. So there are all kinds of stories we need to follow through the course of this week. Stepan Berko is in Kiev, Ukraine. A good news story for you, uh, Stepan, about Ukrainian athletes, hockey players, not letting this invasion stop them from being ambassadors for the country. The uh, national under-25 hockey team of Ukraine tours Western Canada, playing a series of exhibition games. And here's a little story that I wanted you to hear how Canadians are talking about Ukrainian hockey players. After a year of so much stress and heartache, Ukraine's under-25 national men's hockey team ended 2022 with a little fun. Let's go, Calgary! <laughs> I'm like... Oh, we're actually going to the NHL game. It's like the dream came true. Watching the Flames host Vancouver on New Year's Eve was a rare treat for this squad. But this four-city Canadian tour isn't just about watching hockey. They came to play. It's a good feeling, you know, when you come here, it's cold and it feels like hockey. A feeling no one on this ice takes for granted. When the Russian invasion began last winter, Ukraine's national hockey program went dark. For weeks, the war kept every player off the ice. But over time came opportunities outside Ukraine to get back to the game. For 45 days, I think, the senior team was preparing in Hungary. And under 18, uh, they had the camp in Czech Republic and in Switzerland. Now the under-25 team is in Canada playing a series of exhibition games against university teams in Saskatoon, Calgary, Edmonton and Winnipeg, all in preparation for the Winter University Games in Lake Placid, New York, later this month. Hockey for us is the life. And I think it's just one, just one fun for us right now. Because the war at home is always on their mind. Monday morning, the team awoke to news of this, a Russian missile destroying yet another of the country's hockey arenas. It was a home ice rink for many of us. For example, Andre played there for six years. It's why each player on this team wears the blue and yellow with pride. After a year with so much destruction, against all odds, they're keeping the spirit of hockey in Ukraine alive. Heather Urex West, Global News, Calgary.
I'm Shane Hewitt. It's the shift. Stephen Berko, um, some good hockey news of those fantastic ambassadors wearing the colors proudly, touring around our country and playing hockey. It was great to hear your voice again, brother. Thank you so much for being with us and uh, continuing to come on and continue this conversation. I appreciate you. Thank you, Shane. And thank you all for supporting Ukraine. This is the Shift Podcast. Over the last few weeks, we have seen a completely different look at the airlines that we haven't seen in a long time. We didn't just see a breakdown. We saw a complete meltdown. And it wasn't just one airline. And it wasn't the same problem with each airline. That was the craziest thing. So we wanted to get into conversation about this and learn what happens behind the scenes in regards to all of these things. Now, uh, Gabor Lukash, did I get that right? It's Gabor? Luka- it's Lukash. Gabor is rather Lukash, actually, like a catch up. Lukash. Yeah. Lukash. Yeah. You are the president of Avisky or uh, Advocacy Organization of Air Passenger Rights, which people still ask the question do we have any rights, Gabor? Like they literally ask the question. And they do. It just doesn't seem that much gets done about it. So well, why don't we start with, how are you doing today? <laughs> well, I, I'm zoomed out. Uh, I, I've, I I don't even know how many interviews I've given just today and over the holidays. And uh, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to even count more than a dozen calls just, just in one yeah. day. Uh, I spent most of the holidays just responding to passengers' inquiries, trying to put out some information, responding to the media, um, yeah. to to ensure that, that the airlines don't are not able to drown out the the the, the actual correct information. Right. But generally, what what you see with airlines is that they like to tell you what your rights are. They like to tell mm-hmm. you, "Oh, we would love to give you, but unfortunately, it's against the rules. It's against our policy to give you what actually, in reality, you are entitled to." Just look at the recent example with Sunwing, where passengers' baggage went missing. And Sunwing put out a message saying, we graciously are going to cover your interim expenses up to 450 US dollars. And if you have never seen passenger rights in your life, you may think, look, they're so nice. They're offering us all this. But actually, that's the biggest ripoff I've seen for a long time and so blatantly obvious. Yeah, because actually the airline's liability is 2,300 Canadian dollars. So they're offering you, uh, you know, less than a third of what you're owed and they act as if they were acting with some uh, magnanimity and generosity toward you. Well, it is good marketing to make yourself look good in this situation. I mean, I suppose integrity might say that, you know, offer the full value people are entitled to. And if you want to take credit for looking like the good guy, so be it. But just play nice in the sandbox of the rules, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's that's the rule of law is about. Uh, what passengers often don't understand is that there's no difference between your baggage and your car. They're both your property. If somebody mm-hmm. damages, for example, your car, it rear-ends it, they have to pay for it. So your baggage, mm-hmm. if it gets damaged, is no different. It's property. And if, it, if, the damage go, if your baggage goes missing, you still have to incur possibly thousands of dollars in expenses to just buy items that you would need for the per- full purpose of your trip. You went, say, for the purpose of a golf tournament or just playing golf with your uh, business associates or friends, or maybe you wanted to do some water skiing or real skiing or yeah. just uh, sunbathing, whatever you need, uh, whatever items you had in your baggage you need for the purpose of your trip. You can go out and rent or purchase them as you need for the purpose of your trip. And the airline will be on the hook for that. Nobody seems to know that. That's fascinating. So, okay, well, since we're talking about Sunwing, let's start there. Um, 
the I mean, Sunwing actually didn't even bring people home. Like they they oh, yeah. didn't bring them back to Regina. They they were like, by the way, we're not going to Regina anymore. You can go to Winnipeg. Like that in itself is I, who writes who thinks of that rule because that's not something anybody would think of. It is egregious. It it is kind of off the charts violation of passengers' rights. It's simply a non-performance of the contract or or failure to properly perform the contract because the passengers bought a ticket to Regina, not to Winnipeg. So in that situation, Sunwing is on the hook for the passengers' expenses, the passengers' uh, you know, meals, accommodation, transportation home, and also lost wages. Those passengers may be missing work, and the airline will have to pay for that as well. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot going on. I had a couple of my old roommate from way long ago. He was down in Mexico stuck. You know, they made the best of it. But you do see those photos of these people. Because of New Year's, everything was booked. There are people that were sleeping in lobbies of hotels. At least the hotel was gracious enough to let them sleep in the lobby. It's just incredible. I mean, it, it, it's not supposed to happen. And uh, and the question is really, the real question passengers should be asking is not simply what my rights are at this point, but yeah. why are my rights not being enforced? Why well, that's does, my, why my does, next question yeah. was exactly that. Like, is who, why, where's the accountability? Because it's great to have the rule. But my opinion, personal opinion is, don't ever create a rule if you are not prepared to enforce it. I very much agree with you. And, that, and really, the, what we are seeing here is that the airlines feel that they can get away with breaking the rules because there is no meaningful enforcement. Let's talk about enforcement, how it's supposed to work. There are two parts to it. There's one which is uh, under the various regulations um, that are designated as special regulations, one for which the federal regulator, the Canadian Transportation Agency, could fine airlines up to $25,000 per passenger per violation per incident. Now, needless to say, it hasn't been happening over mm-hmm. the, the past uh, fiscal year. So since uh, April 1st, 2022, they issued just 12 notices of violation to airlines, a total of less than $70,000 in fines. And for one notice of violation, which I love bringing up, it's one to WestJet for 55 separate violation, where in each one of those 55 cases, the potential saving from violating the law to WestJet was between $400 and $1,000. They didn't comply with Section 19, Subsection 4 of the APPR, and they were fined a whole $200 per violation. So it's cheaper to break the rule than it was to fulfill the rule. Exactly. And, wow. if, and even if we assume that after being fined, they are going to at least pay that $400,000 to passengers, it's still cheaper in general as a policy to just stonewall everybody or stonewall most passengers and just really pay, pay passengers because the fines are so rare and the amounts are so small that if you just do a financial analysis, a cost-benefit analysis, and optimize profits, you are going to conclude that that strategy is actually more profitable. It's like gambling. The, the, when when, when an, any regulated entity like an airline breaks the law, they're playing a, a roulette type of game. They're gambling. It's like r- rolling a dice. And if it is one, two, three, four, or five, say, then they save the cost of compliance. If it is six, then they get caught and they get fined. And then the question is how much the fine should be. Now, in reality, the dice that they are rolling, it doesn't have six faces, but maybe several hundreds of faces because there are so few cases when actually enforcement is happening to begin with. 
the thing that gets me the most about this is there was a season, Gubber, where I, I season of my life where I worked on the ramp and I moved bags. Wow. And I did it and I did it for WestJet. And when I worked there, the culture of that group, the baggage group, was everything that any passenger could have ever wanted. These were people that would go out of their way to make sure bags caught flights. They would go out of their way to make sure um, uh, WestJet's policy on pets was always one of the best because they always had this ticket. And as soon as you loaded that, that pet into the plane, um, that ticket went up to the gate agent. That ticket was brought to you in your seat and handed to you and said, your, your, your pet is on the aircraft. Like they, there was policies in place that were amazing. Now, there was people that would race to get bags there people that would make sure and look specifically for bags and everything that 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 they did that the staff did to make sure those bags got to the right places was over the top 100%. And so I find it heartbreaking because I am emotionally attached to this because of that that, that past to hear the hard work of so many people. Now it's changed because they have cut that department in a lot of cities and they've subcontracted it out and all those things. But there for so long so many people worked so hard to get this right and to think that policy and corporate or whatever could be getting in the way of all these people that are working their balls off every day like literally working non-stop to get things to you out of good integrity we wonder why customer service in general we go to a restaurant we go to a movie theater whatever is terrible because it seems to me that we're running into this thing over and over again where corporate policy or a bean counter, if you will, is getting in the way of all these people that work so hard for us every day. And those people are working hard for us, the people who are actually doing the work. So how is it that we can break that? I mean, air passenger rights are one thing, but you've got to somehow convince these people that the formula works in, the customer service formula works in favor of the $200 difference, you know? Well, um, Wedget historically used to be more of a mom and pop type of attitude. It's uh, the Wedgeters used to also own shares in a West company. Job. Yeah, yeah, um, we did. And and there it was really ha had this type of ethos and a culture of a family business. I remember uh, flying in those old days at Wedget where Wedget uh, flight attendants would tell jokes at the beginning of the flight, yeah. and it was really you, you could really feel that. You are genuinely a guest, not just a number, not just a, a person. They really had a. And that was a rule, by the way. You didn't call them passengers; you called them guests. Well, but they, at that time, they really meant it. They meant it. Yeah. They meant it. Uh, that has changed a lot. When Wedget lost control over baggage loading in most airports, it is being subcontracted to uh, people who are often being underpaid, and there is no direct communication, no direct chain of control. There is no that type of emotional attachment to to. to the company, I mean, will it make any difference to the person today when they load a baggage, whether that baggage does or doesn't get there? Often these people are now overworked. There's insufficient staffing uh, because the company, which is being subcontracted, also may not be doing a stellar job. Uh, and ultimately, the reason is that this is how they can keep the prices this low. And based on whatever estimates they have made, because there are no meaningful fines, Overall, it is still more profitable to handle things or mishandle things this way than to actually run a proper business. Yeah, and that's amazing. Which, uh, for the credit of what I've seen observed start to happen, is that it looks like WestJet. WestJet's still my favorite of all of them, but um, WestJet is um, 
they are bringing back locally some of those people to work for WestJet. So that's a good step. It, it, that, it, would, it would be a good step in terms of, since they have been yeah. acquired by, by Onyx, it's, it, they have been really going downhill. In terms of the number of complaints I'm seeing in Air Passenger Rides Group, it used to be mostly Air Canada and a few WestJet, and now there, it has been a complete trend reversal. Uh, WestJet has been very poor when it comes to treating passengers and, and the kind of culture of customer service is entirely gone. And, and it's almost as if they wanted to catch up with how nasty Air Canada used to be, and it's kind of like a race to the bottom. <laughs> That's a terrible standard to try to reach of how bad it was. Um, okay, so here we are. Air passenger rights is the conversation, and our guest right now is Gaber Lukat. She's uh, here with, officially, the advocacy organization Air Passenger Rights, just so you know. Now, here's a question for you. Dynamic pricing. I don't know if this falls in your purview or not, but here's what happened. In Vancouver, where my nephew was, that his flight got canceled. And uh, he was offered, basically, we're not going to honor your ticket. Here's your money. Have a nice day. They couldn't get him anywhere. And so what happens is, is demand, you got three, four, five, 10, 20, 30 flights, 200 people a flight. That could be generous. 150 people a flight. And now all of a sudden, you've got 2,000, 3,000 passengers that are looking to get on any flight. What do we do? We get on the internet. We go to book something on the app. What happens with dynamic pricing? Well, now the traffic's gone up, the prices go up. We saw publicly on retail sites $9,000 to get from Vancouver to Toronto over Christmas. And the answer is very simple. Even under existing laws, if the airline could not transport the passengers on their own flights, they were required to rebook the passengers on flights of other airlines. Okay, so that, that was my question, is that to me, in cases like this, dynamic pricing needs to turn off. I don't think it needs to be turned off. It's a, it's a free market, but then the other the airlines need to then later on do some accounting among themselves. Basically, yeah. the law says that either the airline can transport a passenger on its own network within 48 hours. We're talking about the snowstorm, I assume, not just- The snowstorm, yeah. Yeah. Either they can get you the ticket on their own network within 48 hours, or they have to buy you a ticket on whatever any airline, which is getting you fastest home, regardless of whether they have any agreement with them or not. That's for a large carrier like WestJet. And if they don't do it, I would probably just pay $9,000 and make budget pay for it after the fact. Mm -hmm. Well, the question to me becomes that that ticket is never $9,000, right? The thing about dynamic pricing is even when the planes are full, you might be looking at $800 each way, maybe $1,000 each way when the planes are really full. If you go look at some of those flights now, I go to Ottawa a lot, so they're on the busy, busy, busy days. It's eight hundred dollars. But on a right? Christmas day, if there's a higher demand, that it, you know, yeah. it's it's a supply and demand quite problem. Well, I get that, but I guess what I'm saying is it's artificial demand, right? And they're taking full advantage of it. Well, it's not. It's not artificial demand. The other flight was genuinely cancelled. The problem is that uh, that airlines get away with breaking the law and not rebooking passengers or flights sure. of other airlines, even though the law says they have to do so. You know, the, yeah, it, I get it, that. It, it should not be simply the passenger's problem. If if the law was enforced, then that $9,000 were paid by WestJet. And because the other airlines also need to rebook passengers, they would kind of offset overall statistically. I guess so. uh, but, but I, I guess I, I'm suspicious. I don't, I'm suspicious. I, I, I don't see anything wrong. Like it's the, the bigger problem is that, that you can see with pricing is that when they trace a user with cookies and and if if you log on with one browser you get one price different browser you get a different price if you clean your cache right. then you get to get in a different price that's that's more of a problem where they trace your ip numbers um but 
it's uh, it's a you know free market. There's airlines don't have to sell you a ticket at a particular price. What they do have to do is to honor the contract they have made with you. If they made a deal with you, they have to respect it. They have to transport you whether you like it or not. And if the flight is canceled due to weather, they have to buy you a ticket on another airline. This these are the laws, and that's what you can expect to enforce. I, I that's think good to know. I guess I'm I'm just skeptical because of the fact that I've seen many times where flights get canceled. And um, and then the rebooking part never happens, and it cre creates this demand because so many people go on at the same time. If you and I and all of our friends, like I don't know if you go golfing, but golf is another dynamic pricing scenario, is that if you and I and all of our friends are going on a golf trip and we all go separately and look at the tee time prices, and we all happen to go in the same afternoon, those tee time prices are going to skyrocket because four of us or eight of us went and looked at the prices at the same time. And so regardless of the scenario, that's what the 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 AI is doing in the background is it's actually raising prices um, just by the assumption of demand. And and so that's concerning to me. Now, there are so many startups here, Gabber. There there are, we have Flair that has anecdotally um, an interesting record of canceling flights. And because they don't fly into every city every day because they're just starting, sometimes you got to wait two or three days. What is the rule around making someone wait two or three days? Well, the the if a flight is cancelled for reasons within the carrier's control, like what we have seen in in uh, Wedgett's case, for example, for large carriers, they have to rebook you within nine hours of the original time. Otherwise, they have to buy you a ticket on another airline. When it is a weather issue, then it is forty eight hours on their own network, or they have to buy a ticket on another airline. So it's not that not that they can kind of leave you there waiting for days and days, and especially if we're talking about something within the carrier's control. They still have to pay you for your accommodation and meals while you're waiting. Okay, so if I go from here to Ottawa on Flair, Flair goes in there like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, hypothetically. They cancel the Monday flight. Um, that means that they still got to move me they, or let me stay? If they cancel, then they have to pay you two days of accommodation until the Wednesday flight. Uh, and because their Flair is a small carrier and it's a domestic flight, they don't have to rebook you on flights of other airlines unless it's they don't have anything reasonable in you know for a week or something. Where that limit is is unclear, not set out in the, in a price slope. But I would say something over forty eight hours would cross that threshold, and that after that point, I would just buy a ticket and then make Flair pay for it. Even though yeah. it's on the APPR right, it's a it's a contract law right. So where um, do people go to learn more about this, Gabber? There's some, um, you know, uh, it, I feel like people think that air passenger rights is a gigantic contractual document that they're not going to understand. You guys do have a little bit more easy public access for them to go to. What, what's the best way for us to learn? Passengers are invited to uh, uh, join us uh, in our Facebook group uh, and also go to our website at airpassengerrights.ca and review guides there. We don't have the resources to respond to individual emails, so we ask passengers to post in the Facebook group instead. Yeah, because that allows for mass answers for everybody, because there's probably another 149 people who might have the same question. Typically, things come up like this in groups. Exactly. <laughs> Is there ever an opportunity for you guys to get representatives in the airports or get the local airport authorities to create a program where you can have local representatives inside the airport? I mean, the airlines would hate that, but it, it would be nice like nice plan. to do, but we don't have the resources for that. Yeah, there's um, no one that's uh, willing to help. It, it is something to think about a future, especially what we have seen now. Yeah, wow. Boy, when things go wrong, do they ever. This doesn't even get into the conversation down in the States about uh, Southwest who 
said they lost track of their pilots like yeah that's mind-blowing holy cow there's so much to learn and we are going to learn more of the behind the scenes of how this stuff gets scheduled so i think that that's curious as well but if it does happen to you airpassengerrights.ca go to the facebook group learn more because what you're being offered make sure that you guess at least get what you're entitled to it'll reduce stress if nothing else for sure Thanks so much for being so generous with your time on such a busy day, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. This is The Shift Podcast. Are you okay with hand sanitizer? Um, okay, yes, but there's... I, I mean, like, there's probably more than two types, but there's two types of hand sanitizer in my eyes. There's the good kind. And then there's that kind that we started making right when COVID started getting really bad. And we couldn't get enough hand sanitizer. The tequila kind? That smelled like death. It just, it smelled horrible. And it, not like tequila. the strong. It, yeah, it was basically like, but not just tequila, like the floor of a concert. After you know the concert has ended and oh, all the alcohol God. is sticking to the floor, it smelt like that, and it felt like that on your hands too. So I'm okay with one kind of hand sanity, but not, not that kind. Okay. Um, well, I I think hand sanitizer is awesome. Um, I I I struggle with us constantly washing our hands all the time. I mean, the reality is is that why? Well, because we get sick all the time now. Right. I mean, some people, they touch a handrail and they're like, oh, God, I got to wash my hands. Right. OK, yes. Wash your hands before you eat your cheeseburger. But I mean, there is a natural immunity thing that comes with life. Like doing it too much is not OK. But having hand sanitizer available when you walk into the mall or into a store, pretty great idea. Something we probably should have been in an airport. Ugh. Something we probably should have been doing a long time ago. And it was the one lesson I thought that we could learn that would be beneficial to us if we could just get our poop in a group and just keep hand sanitizer around as an option. <laughs> it's a, it? such a good point. And you know, my favorite post COVID change here with the hand sanity is the fact that there's almost always in a public place, at least hand sanitizer near a bathroom. Because one of the things I always thought was weird growing up was you would wash your hands going to the bathroom mm -hmm. and then you would touch the door handle to leave. Mm -hmm. Not everybody washes their hands after they go to the bathroom. You're like, you're touching the gross handle. Well, just in case somebody didn't wash their hands after going to the bathroom, there's hand sanity right there. You can double check and you're good to go. I'll sell up you another one. Um, some of those blowy fans to dry your hands don't really have HEPA filters in them and they're just blowing around bathroom air. All the bacteria, yeah. That's why I wipe my pants. Right? I just uh, use my pants to dry my hands. Yeah. Um, the soap that you're using in the bathroom, you're assuming it's good soap. Not always the case, right? I I would say most public places I go now, the hand sanitizer thing is empty. It's never been refilled. Like, they just don't do it anymore. I would have to say that every bathroom should have hand sanitizer when you leave. Yep. Right? I think that's the thing. I think that's a, that's a really great uh, way for us to do this. I keep hand sanitizer in the house now, which is great. I mean, I take the dog out. I got to pick up after the dog. I mean, I don't touch this stuff, but my hand comes close in the bag, right? Yeah. So just do the do the thing and do the and the hand scrubbies works good. Anyway, during COVID, it was valuable, valuable like gold. 
including the the jelly, the the gel stuff that was in it. That was another big one. Is that there was no jelly, so you ended up with this liquid, drippy drip. So um, we use way more sanitizer than we did before COVID. Now, probably not enough, I would say, but a massive amount of hand sanitizer became a big problem, a headache, you might say, for firefighters in LA this past week. And this pallet fire had deep-seated flames underneath and in the middle of the of the whole burn pile here. And then to make it worse, what's burning is hand sanitizer. Fire department tells me that the hand sanitizer is actually lighter than water. So when they went to put water on the fire, the water just went to the bottom of the pallet and the hand sanitizer continued to burn. So they actually had to do what they do in airline fires and they used uh, foam. You can see them spraying the foam right here. But because of the issues with the foam and because the fire is so deep-seated in those pallets, which pallet fires, by the way, even without hand sanitizer are hard enough to get under control. The fire department says their best bet just to let it burn. CBS LA right there. And that's what they did. They let it burn, baby, burn. Don't worry. There were no explosions or injuries or anything like that. Also worth noting that the area was being contained by the uh, damming operation to limit any water runoff into the drains of the hand sanitizer for the fishes. Very I feel like that's water. a very California disclaimer. It, oh, definitely. Very California. Yeah. And the images of that fire are pretty gross, by the way. It looks like somebody burning toxic waste. It's, oh, really? it's, yeah. And it was like right downtown, too. I can't even imagine what that smelled like. I don't know. I, I feel like it would be a biohazard. It which was is confusing ironic using hand sanitizer when, when COVID started because. You know, some of the liquor companies were making hand sanitizer, yeah. high-proof alcohol, really. But then they didn't have any bottles because supply chains and everybody was using all the pumps. So they were using wine bottles and all these things. So you'd go into the grocery store <laughs> and you would that. buy these wine bottles with hand sanitizer stickers on them that were basically just high-proof alcohol with a little bit of aloe or something mixed in. It was a confusing time. It, I mean, it, we really were... There was a lot of things we did that were questionable. It's funny because it feels like it's it's so long ago, but it's really not. And yet, when you think mm -hmm. back to how, yeah, how crazy it was that we Why? turned to our local distilleries to keep our hands clean. I know. Uh, you know I um I went to the Staples yesterday, and I, I was reminded of that because they still have the incredibly worn out, wait in line six feet apart stickers, stickers outside the, the store. Yeah. When you weren't allowed to go in the stores. Yeah, it's kind of wild. Are you okay with automated texts? Texts? Uh, texts. No, I always forget to turn them off. Although I do like it when, you know, uh, you get a reminder or something keeps texting you. And then it says plus reply to stop. You know, that's easy. But, you know, what's funny mm -hmm. is that probably about when I was in grade, I want to say grade 12. So almost, God, almost 10 years ago, oof, I went to the Ralph Lauren outlet store across Iron Mall, and I, I, I wanted to get a discount, so I signed up for the mobile thing, and I have mm -hmm. never been able to cancel that, that uh, text chain. They have probably sent me a, f a hundred texts a year for the past 10 years, and really? I've never gone back. Never. And I can't oh. get it to stop. I could block the number, but it's almost kind of like on a lonely day. Do you day, just reply stop? Hey, Have you tried that? No. I reply, give me free clothes. Oh. I haven't gotten a well, response. Maybe that's yet. why. Reply stop or reply unsubscribe.
Yeah. You can also forward it to 7726, which is spam. And then that message gets classified as spam, although Apple does a terrible job stopping spam. But Horrible job. It's not even worth it. Worst trying. ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Automated texts are great reminders. I just, I, yep. I, I get them every day because I have them connected to some of my calendars. And I, I just don't, I don't know. That's why I have, that's why I got mad at Apple because every time they overwrite all of my custom text sounds, I have the defaults, and then I have the people that I want to know if it's them texting, like the kids, right? So, hmm. Some folks in the UK got automated texts that were as traumatic as the scene from Family Guy when Dr. Hartman shared Peter Griffin's test results. Well, Mr. Griffin, let's take a look at your physical results. Ah! There's a spider in here! Now, here we go. Mr. Griffin, you're going to expire in a month. This is your driver's license, isn't it? Now, unfortunately, I'm afraid you're going to die. When you watch these Dean Martin celebrity roasts... Will you just tell us how Peter's health is? Uh, Mr. Griffin, I'm not quite sure how to say this. Kim Bassinger? Basinger? 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 But now, on to the cancer. Oh, my God. You are a cancer, right? You were born in July? Now, on to these test results. My, they're much worse than I thought. My son got a D- minus on his history test. Now, Mr. Griffin, that liver's got to come out. What? It's been in the microwave for three minutes. It'll get dry. Now. Please. Please. We can't take any more shtick. That's pretty good. I love that scene. That's an iconic, classic, old-school Family Guy moment. And very perfect, very fitting for this story. Very good. A medical practice in England intended to text its patients wishes for a very Merry Christmas instead. The mass text told patients they had aggressive lung cancer and it had spread and asked them to fill out a form for terminal patients. Merry Christmas. According to the BBC, Asker and Medical Practice sent out the text message to people registered with the surgery in Doncaster on 23 December. In it, that was a very English way to say the date, by the way. In it, the practice says that the doctor has asked the recipient to fill out a form, the DS-1500. Oh, not the DS-1500. Which, according to another UK hospital system, is meant for people who have a terminal illness to apply for benefits. (laughs) The text also tells recipients that they've been diagnosed with aggressive lung cancer uh, with, I don't ever say this word right, metastasis. Metastasis. Metastasized. I, that's metastasized? how I, ugh, I. I know how to say it's metastasized. Okay. Anyway, this isn't funny, by the way. Like that's terrifying, horrifying. In a second text, text, patients were asked to accept the center's sincerest apologies. This has been sent in error. It states, "Our message to you should have read." <laughs> this part is funny. This. <laughs> This has been sent in error, it states. Our message to you should have read, we wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Oh, my God. Like, that's going to make it better now. Oh, no. Uh, Like, it doesn't even say, just to be clear. Do not have (laughs) lung cancer. Because the way they say that, um, like, the way they say it is, that was sent in error. The message you should have read should have said um we wish you a merry christmas it's like they just said by the way the lung cancer message was right but we meant to finish it with merry christmas that's (laughs) how they said it making it worse the practice's last news release uh issued in september recognized excellence feedback in feedback from patients regarding telephone consultations (laughs) you can't make this up 
It's not funny to be sick. It's not funny no. to tell people that they're sick, but it is such a cluster that um, it's a, yeah. Anyway, you get yeah. it. That went out to like 8,000 people. Oh, my. Really? 8,000 people found thought they had cancer on Christmas. Ugh, that's terrible. <gasps> It's terrible, but also perfect. Imagine. Are you okay? Like when I when I when I'm putting the ROKs together, sometimes mm-hmm. there's stories that just like yes. Sometimes they're uncomfortable. That was perfect. Yep. Uh, and hopefully everyone's Christmas was fine. Yes. Um, but I mean, really though, I mean, no jokes. Think about it. If somebody in there got the wrong message, then got the Merry Christmas message, then after Christmas got a diagnosis message because maybe they were in that pile, even worse. Right. Yep. Are you okay with porta potties? Uh, no, no, they are a last resort only. I mean, you know, really? sometimes, yeah, you know, if, if there's one, you gotta go, you gotta go, but it's just the no. smell. And your you generation have to turn your doesn't know how good you have it. it. No, every, like, I, this is just me. Every, people in my generation use porta potties, no problem. I just, I just have never been but able. You have no idea. To use them. You don't know what it's like to have nothing but a hole in the ground. No, I don't. And and to go through that and how bad that is. Porta potties before the blue juice or the Smurf juice that's like the anti stink stuff. Uh, before that, that like it was basically just a bucket of feces and urine. Like it was terrible. And then in the hot sun at a festival or a concert or wherever you were, it was yeah. even worse. And it's not like the vents really worked. Now no, they've don't. got the, they've got the the sort of the urinal part, and it smells all right. And then you know it's totally different than the way it used to be. Porta potties today are heavenly compared to the way they used to be. I'm glad I'm, that I d- didn't have to deal with those porta potties, but I wish I didn't have to deal with any porta potties. I will leave it at that. Roadside porta potties, which is literally a toilet with a hole in the ground. Um, like that's what we're talking about here. Like nasty. <laughs> yeah. Gross. Anyway. Terrible. Um, <laughs> um, porta potties can come to the resume. Oh, there, there's an autocorrect. Is that a typo or an autocorrect? <laughs> uh, that's a typo. That's that a typo. Said rescue. That even qualifies as this. It's a typo. It's a typo. Porta potties can come to the rescue. I'm assuming. Uh-huh. Yes. So as long as they stay in their lane, quite literally, a porta potty in a bike lane left behind from a construction project is causing some controversy. This portable toilet sitting smack dab in the middle of the bike lane isn't exactly what cyclists were looking forward to for their first ride of the new year. I haven't had to use it, so <laughs> it's really of uh, no use to me, I guess. But I, there's obviously other places they could put it. Um, on the street, not in the middle of the street. The porta potty has been blocking the lane near College of McCall for more than a week now, and it doesn't take much effort to spot obstructions elsewhere. How often do you notice, you know, stuff in the bike lanes like this? Every single day. How do you feel about that? Well, it's completely unsafe. Um, all we have is a painted line, and then I have to merge it. The cars are not expecting. I don't know. I can't plan my routes. It's just unsafe. This intersection here at Peter and Adelaide Street is indicative of many problems that cyclists are saying they're seeing with their bike lanes. You have some construction debris, another blockage on the other side with a car parked in front of it, and over here, another porta potty. I can't plan my routes. Because stuff's in the way of my bike lane. Oh, no. 
Uh, you know what's in the body. way of you know what's in the way of my car lane? A cyclist that's swerving in and out of bike lanes and sidewalks and crosswalks, and then shortcutting across car lanes. You know what they really should? If this was Calgary, because that's where I am. You know what they would really be mad about? That the porta potty that's in the bike lane is getting in the way of the snowplow that's clearing the bike lanes before it clears the sidewalks or the road. I hate it. <laughs> I, I can. I've seen. I've been in the car with you when mm-hmm. you've seen a bike lane. It's like it gets you. And you hear what I say? Red. Find me a bike. Show me a bike. Find me a bike in this bike lane that is clear of snow. Look at the sidewalk and the guy in the electric wheelchair trying to scoot his way down the road through the three inches of snow, but the bike lane's clear. It is this. We've got it all wrong. I am all for people being able to ride their bikes, but you know how you fix this? Cyclists actually stay in bike lanes and don't shortcut all the time. I'm a bike. I'm a pedestrian. I'm a car. I'm a pedestrian. I'm a bike. Anyway. Somebody is going to need to use that porta potty, and they're going to be really mad when it goes away. That report was with uh, Global's Matthew Bingley. Advocates told Global News that the porta potty is part of a troubling pattern and lack of clear policies from the city. Toronto kicked off its zero, uh, its Vision Zero Road Safety Plan this year, a comprehensive action plan focused on reducing traffic-related fatalities and serious injuries on Toronto streets. The porta potty might be a bit of a hindrance to that plan. You know what else is a hindrance to that plan? I'm way out of time is that all of the times that the construction road signs are still up, like on a long weekend, nobody's working, and everyone slams on the flipping brakes because all of a sudden it drops from 110 to 60. And by the way, nobody's working for four days. You know what? Give that guy a ticket. He should have taken down the signs. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.